You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and today I've rented The Fourth Protocol. Watching it with me is Jonathan Sofcott from Shogun Films. Hi Jonathan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited about The Fourth Protocol, which is a real kind of teenage favourite of mine. Oh yes. Um, thank you for bringing your Betamax copy of this film. Uh, what's so special about it for you? Well, I, you know, Michael Caine is my favourite actor, is, is the long and the short of it. And, you know, everyone has their favourite Michael Caine movie. Um, and I like all the ones that no one else does. Um, so, sure, I like Alfie. It's terrific. Um, I always found Zulu a bit of a slog. Too many repeat viewings on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and obviously Get Carter's fantastic. And, you know, there's all these great movies. But for me, Kane, peak Kane is mid-80s Kane. Um, yes. The Kane of Jaws of Revenge, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Without a Clue, Jack the Ripper, Blame It on Rio, and of course The Fourth Protocol. And if you combine my, my, my great admiration for Kane with the fact that the James Bond movies of the 80s are my favourites, then Michael Kane in a spy movie opposite Pierce Brosnan is kind of about as good as life gets. This really was a, a golden age, certainly if we're talking about being a movie podcast about the 1980s for Kane. Um, and you forget that it was quite often parodied, you know, Blame It on Rio, and I've talked about Surrender that he did with Steve Guttenberg and Sally Field before. But this was also one of his most successful periods, certainly in terms of awards. And in this, you know, it really was a proper adaptation of a proper spy novel. And that, you know, once, and as we talked about this before we started recording... If you strip away quite a lot of it, you know, change maybe the Russians for something a little bit more contemporary, the plot could quite easily be transferred into the current day. Yeah, it could. I mean, it's, you know, the, the idea that someone is smuggling in a nuclear bomb piece by piece um, undercover to, to, to essentially trigger, um, you know, either unilateral disarmament or War Three is fantastic. It's completely ripped off from Octopussy, which has exactly the same yes, fundamental story in it. Yes, um, and uh, you know that's brilliant because you can never have too much Octopussy. But it's 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 a great kind of stripped back performance driven thriller, and I think that's one of the things that I like about it. You know, when you when you look at those eighties um, spy movies, they're they're so often sort of hampered by all the at the time high tech. I mean, you know that that sort of digital watch briefcase in For Your Eyes Only that controls all the submarines. It has not aged so well. But the fact of the matter is we all still think about a nuclear bomb as looking rather like one of those fairground things where you have to get the stick through the wire. Um, <laughs> so seeing Pierce Brosnan build it out of um, what kind of looks like some gym weights and um, a, a, a rolling pin and a coffee cup <laughs> is, is terrific. And, and that's exactly what I would expect the Russian next door to be doing. And this was, of course, filmed in Milton Keynes, which was a hotbed of badness in the 80s because this was about the time they filmed Superman 4. I mean, we're watching this and I've talked an awful lot. Pierce Brosnan seems to come up on loads of these episodes and this is the first time he's actually appeared on screen in one and it's the first time I've done a film where Michael Caine is in front of the camera if you take away the, the 1986 World Cup film he did which I'm sure paid for a villa or at least a nice car for him. But um, yeah, but it's, it's just so nice to sit down and watch. You know, I, I read one of the reviews of this where it was basically saying this was Pete Caine it was that era where you know he he was a little bit older this was you know almost it's not the same character he's not harry palmer but it's in the same sort of world as the ipcris file where he's a little bit older a little bit more sort of wily and less bullshy in his way but he's still almost playing the same character 
Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I'll be honest with you. This was always a more appealing um, film to me than uh, than the, the Harry Palmer films, as much as I, I love and appreciate them. And the Impress Valley in particular is a terrific movie. Um, but I, I prefer kind of like older, authoritative, kick-ass Kane rather than, um, you know, I'm going to buck the system, young Kane. And and he, I mean, he, he clearly had a, a real kind of fascination with the Palmer character because he was always attracted to playing these kind of slightly underdog spies, not only obviously in this, but then he, he did the two um, Harry Allen Towers um, Palmer movies in the 90s, Bullet to Beijing and Mission to, was it Mission to Moscow or was that Police Academy? I can't that was, remember. That was Police um, Academy. <laughs> I think that was Police Academy, but you know, they all kind of blend into one. Um, uh, and, uh, and and then he, he, did, um, he did a movie that I actually watched again recently called Blue Ice. Do you know that one? Yes, uh, so, so I think I saw that at the time. I haven't seen it since. Yeah, which is is, is kind of like a, a really shit sequel to, to Fourth Protocol. <laughs> um, and and he's he's an ex spy in it who owns a jazz club and drives a Jaguar and you know has an affair with a much younger woman and and so, somehow gets tangled up with some sort of uh, old school tie type um, superiors pulling a scam. Um, and, and you know that was clearly something he thought that he was was that sort of anti anti Bond. But in the eighties and the early nineties, he was a more polished anti Bond, which I I like. And and I think in the Fourth Protocol, he he really has that kind of alpha male thing down down pat. And you know the, the appeal of Kane has always been that he is every man. You know he's he's a, he's a, he's a bit heavy. He's a regular guy. You could see him going out shopping or down the pub. He talks like everyone else. He he you know he's not uber stylish, but he's always cool. Um, and you know that that for me is is exemplified in in Fourth Protocol, where he is he is basically playing Michael Caine if he were a spy, which of course <laughs> is what all movie stars do. And um, as you said about the, the the style or the fashion, he certainly rocked the ski jacket over a leather blouse on look. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remember reading something at the time um, that it was all a bit uncomfortable because they either shot it in the winter and then had to do the pickups in the summer. So he was sort of sweating horribly in his uh, in his ski jacket um, or they shot it in the summer and he was dressed inappropriately, something like that. Um, but the, uh, you know, I mean, Kane always looks great on screen. He is he is for a man who who is clearly not particularly into style or fashion. He's always a natural clothes horse. He always looks great. You know, he always looks like a, a real sort of tough guy. Everything's minimalist. Um, and he always looks like he's not trying too hard. Um, and, and that's that's the Kane I like is, is when he's like that. You know, I mean, he, he, he looks at his I think he looks at his physical peak in that film as well. Yeah, so I think he's at that sort of age where he's. He's probably able to use his physique slightly more. He's not just this live young thing, I suppose. No, no, he's not. He looks. He looks like mm. he's going to fuck Pierce Brosnan up, and he does. It's great, yeah. you know. And, and and when Pierce Brosnan gets the upper hand, he calls in the SAS. I mean, what more could you want? <laughs> I mean, speaking of Brosnan, I mean this this would have been the time or this eighty seven when he should have been in the Living Daylights. Um, and we talked about in that pod where you know, he was very well virtually announced in the role and, and had to leave back to Remington Steel. But, you know, this was, you know, he certainly looked the part. Well, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote about that. And obviously, you know, I can only tell you what I was told. But I, I used to be friends with a publicist called Jerry Pam, um, a Brit in L.A., who's sadly dead now. Um, and his two biggest clients for many, many, many years were Michael Caine and Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he's a fairly decent authority on, on the subject. And he told me, he represented Pierce Brosnan at the time, he told me that Pierce got as far as actually shooting the gun barrel for the living daylights. Oh, really? Um, so, I mean, that must have been galling. And look, I, I love Dalton. Dalton is terrific in those two terrific movies. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, he was way ahead of his time. 
Um, I I also think Brosnan's timing was better in the nineties um, because he he was a t- he's always been a fantastic actor. You know, he's brilliant in the Fourth Protocol. He he's even fantastic in that tiny little part in the Longer Friday. You know, he had such a strong look. But by the time Goldeneye rolled around, he looked more of a man. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and I think unless the Living Daylights had been a, you know, a real kind of Casino Royale style reboot going back to basics, which they would never have thought about doing back then, um, that, then it wouldn't have worked. And, and, you know, I mean, the Living Daylights is slightly hampered by the fact that it's very clearly a Roger Moore movie that they cut the jokes out of to accommodate Timothy Dalton. Because uh, I, I know on Fundable's, uh, Marty's website, where they actually, he actually has some photos of Pierce Brosnan filming some of his Living Daylight scenes. And yeah. then when you compare it to what, eight years later when Goldeneye came out, and he just looks like he's matured into the role. Yeah, and it, and even like looking at him, yeah. he does. And, and looking at him here where, I mean, the, the scene where he is assembling the bomb with Joanna Cassidy, and he's obviously shirtless, but... He looks, and I say it's a funny thing for me to say, but he looks quite skinny compared to how he does in the Bond films where he does look that few years older and a few years probably more confident as well. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and you know, the thing is that he was in the 80s when he was doing Remington Steel. Um, he was very good at that kind of, um, you know, light, comedic, um, charming mm. stuff. Um, but But I think the difference is in the 80s, um, he, he, if I, if I were casting him, which is obviously something I, I do in, in, in my job, um, I would cast him as face in the A-team. In the 90s, I would cast him as James Bond. And there is a real difference between those two two things. Um, and, and also in between those two things, he, you know, he, he became a movie star. Um, mm. it's, it's easy to forget because we all love Robin Williams so much. But the best thing in Mrs. Doubtfire is actually Pierce Brosnan. He is absolutely fantastic in that film. Um, you know, it's a really terrific, understated comedic performance. In this, he, he again, is kind of essentially playing two roles, the uh, KGB major, the Academy star, becoming, I suppose, Mr. Joe Average living in Milton Keynes or, you know, in, in East yeah. Anglia where this airbase was. Um, there were a couple, you know, and, and this film isn't a comedy, but the, I mean, there are some, some light parts in it. And he does, there's a part of the scene where, his American neighbours take him out and and he beats couple... them at bowling and everything yeah yeah yeah. and there's a couple in there where he just kind of sits there think someone without any timing could have played that incredibly straight but I suppose it allowed him a little bit whether it was even just the sly eyebrow or that sort of wry smile where he's clearly a lonely man watching suburbia passing by yeah well he's watching, he's watching big buddy on the wrestling isn't it i mean that's that's the thing you know because it's like it's the 80s in 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 east anglia what the hell else is there to do apart from trying to seduce your neighbor's wife i mean you know he he couldn't go on instagram and look at bonds or anything <laughs> could he so he kind of has to to make his own entertainment i mean uh, it, they just so happen that the the major plot point of this is that he's a kgb agent recruited by the head of the kgb to basically detonate a nuclear bomb next to a US Air Force base in order to make it look like it was an accident. Um, and this is something I had to look at, you know, the whole, what the fourth protocol is uh, regarding the treaty that was signed in, in the 60s. And it's it's quite a strange one between the, the sort of big powers about nuclear weapons in that if you're going to use a nuclear weapon, do it, it's almost like do it like a man. Don't be sly and try and bring it in by covert means it's kind of the only acceptable way of doing it is via plane or a missile yeah 
it's an odd. I, I'm sure it made sense to them at the time, but uh, hey. Well, it was, it was uh, obviously a popular plot because, like I say, they stole it from Octopussy. So you know, yeah. there are obviously a lot of, of people thinking this is what the Russians are going to do. They're going to yeah. uh, they're going to blow up an airbase and blame everyone else. Yeah, it's a shame Brosnan didn't get a chance to dress up as a clown, but uh, yes. uh, yeah, it's it's something that I I think about often and regret deeply. <laughs> um, I love the fact that you know again another peak eighties film that I love. Um, this film opens in Siberia. Uh, a bit like Rocky Four, although at, yes. least they, at least this was a bit closer. They filmed this in Finland rather than I think it was Wyoming where they filmed Rocky Four. Yeah, but Rocky Four is such a great movie. I mean, yeah. you know, you talk about Christmas movies, that's got to be up there. Oh. I think, <laughs> I think not the best Rocky, but it's my favourite Rocky. Yes, this and again, you know, they had the cars driving through the snow and the sort of huts and cabins. Yeah, and it looks and epic, and and, and, yeah. and also I think I think we really do have to. Uh, you know, talk about the music in the Fourth Protocol, which is fantastic, and is something I would actually love to have on CD. Um, that that score is so um, sort of evocative and, and adds so much production value to watching all of that. Um, you know, the snowy stuff and the Russia stuff. It's you know that really is amazing. I, I take it it's not because I mean it's you know Lalo Sheffrin who did sort of Bullet and Mission Impossible theme and, and this you kind yeah. of think something like that would be and I guess this is the conversation we have un- unfortunately on a lot of these episodes where you know people are fond of the, the score of a film and they're so hard to get hold of um, they unless, are uh, you no, know, not, they're a pain yeah yeah I mean often there's there'd be like a small independent company might get hold of it but you think that music and, and again when I tweeted about the film the other day um, that was one of the things that people seemed to love most about it was the score and I suppose it's probably sitting in someone's vault somewhere yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Fourth Protocol is out on Blu-ray yet, is it? I, um, I've got it on DVD as part of a Michael Caine box set, but um, okay, no, I've, some, I've... some, sometimes that triggers. You know, the Blu-ray makes people sort of pay attention again and and put a CD out. Yeah, because it is on iTunes. I recorded it off. It was on one of the sort of Sky channels, those random ones that seem to have yeah. that. But um, yeah, no, it's strange. Again, one of these sort of quirks of of cinema where you know if it's a big film that goes but every stone is unturned to drag something out that yeah. could be seen as content but I, um, I, will, I, will, I will look into it you know sometimes one yeah. of the, the things I do behind the scenes is sort of try and push old films out for uh, hmm. for, for release I mean you know I, I give myself a pat on the back for being the person that really forced the man who haunted himself out onto DVD which I know is a film you saw recently um, yeah yeah and and I mean this is twenty years ago but it was it was completely unknown then I mean you know people in this country knew it but in America no and um a friend of mine in the States had bought a big library from uh, uh, Studio Canal. And he was doing all the Hammer Horror movies and all this kind of stuff, and the mm. Sweeney. And, and I just said, listen, guys, you've got the man who haunted himself. This is a fucking brilliant film. And I know Roger Moore. I can get him to do the DVD commentary, which which we did. Um, and, and people came out, and suddenly everyone realized what an amazing movie it was. Um, and it's, that's, that's another one that could really do with a soundtrack CD, I think. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, you've gone to all that work, and it's almost a shame that... Um, this is the sort of the yin and the yang, I suppose, of, of satellite TV channels in the UK. Anyways, that there are a couple of channels, and one in particular is Talking Pictures, that show yes. these films quite regularly. And unfortunately, as I say, it's a great film, The Man Who Haunted Himself, and yet we only see the film. We don't get to, you know, as, as Joe Average, and I suppose this is what 
is the incentive to go out and actually buy the DVD is to actually go and listen well, to well, the commentary. Well, it is, and, and yeah, and you know, I mean, I, it's hard. I, I still like owning physical media, um, mm. and and you know, obviously, my business being a film producer, I I, I want to support physical media, and, and it's it's a fallacy, certainly in the genres that I make films in that the physical media is over. People do still buy DVDs in great numbers. Um, the the difficulty is if it's if it's not um, you know chart stuff in the supermarkets, it's it's harder for people to get them, particularly with the the sad closure of HMV. Um, but I, I like I, I feel like I own a film when I buy a Blu-ray, you know, and, and mm. that that's the same part of me that remembers ever so clearly when I was at secondary school going into a flea market and buying the fourth protocol big box X rental VHS. Oh, classic. Then again, they're just things where you remember, and even little things like if you found them now, there'd be the the trailers at the beginning or the adverts oh, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and adjusting the fucking tracking. That was all. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, memories. I should have actually digged this out. This Maybe that should have been the podcast, actually watch the films on a video. Yeah. Be, wouldn't have to, file, you know, at least if I record them off the telly or, uh, you know, obviously a lot of them I do have on DVD or Blu-ray, but some of them I have recorded off telly or, um, yeah, um, iTunes or something like that, which isn't... I suppose kind of sits in the middle at least they don't necessarily drop off like they do on Netflix or or Amazon no 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 yeah. that is that is a pain when they when they disappear but that's that's why you have to support physical media folks because once you've got it you've got it forever yeah again slightly off topic you know one of you know, you're behind some of the films that usually top the DVD or Blu-ray selling charts don't they yes um, well they the from time to time up. yes they do yeah and um and again this is the thing where you know one of my followers on twitter shared quite recently he found his old betamax video recorder in of his parents loft and he had all these original betamax home videos that had you know sort of pre-certified star wars you know untampered yeah. and to think that you know the nostalgia it brings up and the fact that hopefully the tape survived i don't know if they did yeah, I, 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 I love all that. You know, that that's fantastic, and, and and you know that's that's kind of what inspired me to do what I do. And and you know, sort of growing up in video shops, and we, mm. we we never used to go to the cinema really. I mean, we did from time to time. You know, very special, exciting event movies like Jaws: The Revenge. Um, my friends don't ever <laughs> see, but um, but generally speaking, the cinema was a treat. Um, you know, Dolph Lundgren in Masters of the Universe, Transformers the movie. That was that was the kind of stuff I wanted to see then. But but the video shop was very accessible. It's just around the corner. And and that's kind of where my love of sort of cult and exploitation movies was fostered, really. And and you know, a massive part of that were tantalising boxes. Um, you know, I, I'm still devastated that Return of the Killer Tomatoes doesn't have a Rambo-esque <laughs> guy with a giant tomato head in. That's that's very disappointing. Yeah, I mean, my local video shop was where I discovered most of the sort of Jackie Chan Hong Kong films, and uh, they, that was something my local video shop seemed to specialise in was martial arts films. Which, yeah. you know, at the time being sort of early teens when I really got into that, that was uh, that was great, and and they were so yeah, cheap. Well, they, they were big business, you know, horror, mm. martial arts, um, you know, that, that slightly dubious erotic thriller. Um, <laughs> they they were all real staples of the um, of the home entertainment business back then, and. There were so many places to, to, to sell them. You know, every spa shop had a, a video rack. Um, mm. You know, and I, I remember when I first moved to London um, when I was about 20, um, you know, there was this whole new world of, of every corner has a spa shop on and they all have these these video racks. Um, and so suddenly there was a whole new world of crap I'd never seen, like Nosferatu <laughs> in Venice and, and all this kind of stuff. It was fantastic. And then obviously video went out and DVD came in and that was the end of that. Yeah, I say. We're missing a bygone era. 
So. Yes, very much so. Very yeah. much so. <laughs> um, I mean, back to the the fourth protocol and having not seen this for ages, and you kind of forget some of the, as we touched on earlier, the, the lighter parts of the film. The introduction to Michael Caine. Um, or John Preston, as he arrives, you can see him on CCTV looking incredibly drunk on yeah. his way to, you know, again... What a great scene that is. And Kane does drunk better than anyone. And that is one yeah. of his absolute best drunk Kane scenes. Um, you know, he's he's fantastic. Um, and um, that, that scene's terrific. Start the new year off with a bang. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And, and I love the actor Anton Rogers, who, who plays mm. the uh, the unfortunate sort of putts in the whole thing. Um, he and Kane obviously reaching years later in uh, in Dirty Ron Scandals where he was the mischievous police inspector yeah um, but this was you know some proper I mean it's hardly subtle you know, I guess it was partially intended to look like a burglary but again you're sort of blowing the safe with a bag of water and um, the way he was cutting the cables you know he, you know from the beginning that you know he, he's a professional knows exactly what he's yeah. doing um, but again you know the whole concept and maybe it's just me you know I, I live in a fairly normal house um the concept of having top secret papers in your house just in the safe behind the picture on the wall is uh something i can only aspire to yeah i mean i keep mine under the floorboards it's much better <laughs> i'll know that for next time um yeah. and then Payne gets told off by uh, another 80s movie legend julian glover I, I've been fortunate enough to work with Julian twice um, wow. in in a film called Airborne and uh, in We Still Still the Old Way. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he is, like you say, one of the, the, the fantastic 80s villains from The Empire Strikes Back through to Indiana Jones, For Your Eyes Only, um, and going 20 years back before that, Quatermass in the Pit. Mm. And again, he portrays brilliantly this whole, and this is what, plagues i suppose most of the public sector in the uk or the civil service the sort of aspirational uh do anything at all costs and, and obviously ultimately this is what plays out throughout the film um but he is the acting was it the acting head of mi5 yeah. at one point and everything you know as michael kane is quite keen to tell him acting and acting head sunshine yeah yeah exactly. it's um it's just even little touches like that and i'm sure you know the that goes throughout the the theme of the stories and the and the novels, but just little touches like that just make it seem like you know if, if you're watching it from almost that point of view, it just gives you that kind of reassurance that you know this could be very realistic. It is my prerogative as head of this country's security service, acting head sunshine, and if you ask me, you're acting like a complete asshole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and you know the supporting cast is. is- absolutely fantastic i mean neb Beatty, julian obviously um michael goth what a fantastic character mm. actor he was going all the way back to the hammer films in the 50s and obviously he was the original movie um alfred in the michael keaton batman films ray mcnally who who worked with kane again in the brilliant jack the ripper miniseries a couple of years after ian richardson i mean it's it's literally mm. like a who's who of, of fine british actors with tax bills to pay coming in and stopping some beer <laughs> from doing a movie <laughs> it was a strong cast and, and one thing i know you know from the beginning when you look at the cv of, of the director john mckenzie and of course the the thing that stands out most is is the long good friday like you already mentioned you, you um, bet yeah yeah you know coming coming in with that sort of resume and that cast it's um you know it's, i mean i'm not saying these things put themselves together but you know you can see that on the screen and in the story it works so well 
Yeah, and and I think I mean you know John McKenzie um, is is a seriously underrated director in my view. I mean, I, not only is The Long Good Friday the best British gangster movie of all time, bar none, I think it's also a perfect movie. Um, you know, for me, it's equally as good as any of the Godfathers, um, and it's it's a phenomenal piece of filmmaking, completely flawless. Um, and and that's why, to be honest with you, I've always been quite surprised. Fourth Protocol is is not particularly well known because it's by the director of The Longer Friday, for Christ's sake. I mean, that Michael Caine and Pierce Brosnan is enough to give it classic status for me. Um, but I, I guess the the spy genre, if it's not particularly glamorous, isn't overly popular. And I guess this was one of the the quotes that was attributed to Caine. Uh, I saw it on IMDb where he was talking about this film and and what he was looking to make as. Is he the executive producer or associate producer on the film was trying to drive a more action-y spy movie that was akin to the 80s films that we talked about earlier and yet he seemed disappointed that it turned out you know a slower pace and a lot more talking which to me actually I probably made found that more enjoyable I think it worked well, that, better. yeah I, I think I think that's what makes it more of a powerful film because the problem is they clearly wouldn't have had the budget to compete with Bond mm. um, so it would have ended up looking like you know, Death Wish 3 or, or something like that. And, and while I would love to see Kane blowing away muggers, we did in Harry Brown much later, um, but with a, with a bazooka, um, this isn't that film. This is, this is to be honest with you, a more grown-up film. Um, you know, it's a quality piece of drama with some quality actors um, and, and some genuine tension. And I think it's also worth saying that the... Um, the leading lady, um, Joanna Cassidy, what a ter- terrific actress she was. And, you know, it's only a small part, but it's a good part. And she'd been in Blade Runner. Um, she went on to be in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And, and it, one, of, one, of the, one of the great things, when you're making a genre film of any kind, the thing that always lets you down, if it's going to let you down, is this bad supporting actors, because everyone remembers them. Everyone in this movie is terrific. There's not one bad turn by any of the cast. No. And even the scene, you know, quite early on when they're looking, they put... Um the, the little putts as you say under surveillance when he's trying to implement some tradecraft in making sure he's not followed he's switching trains he's going back on himself yep. to go to the pizza restaurant you know it is, it is in the grand scheme of things it isn't CGI heavy there's no stunts but things like that add to the tension you've got the cast yeah, and it's really it, clever because when, when it cuts back to them all being in the van all the people he's walked past it's like oh wow because you, you don't know who is a spy and who isn't a spy um, yeah you know it's, that's a really 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 nice scene and I still want to have a pizza in that restaurant <laughs> um, and again you know things like that where he's dropping off presumably the documents that end up in the South African embassy which then yeah. links to how he's turned and how he's outed as this well he he's sort of defends it by saying he's fighting communism and he's sort of turned into you know a supplier of misinformation no and it's very prescient now for these times i mean you know as we now live in the age of fake news um it, it's it's kind of old school fake news in in print rather than on the internet which i, I think is is very sort of forward thinking yeah and i think the fact that you know he's got an ideal and it turns out that you know just because he's feeding stuff to fight communism I mean, you'd like to think, but then, you know, that these people might have a little bit more of a, a bigger picture idea. But the fact that this information he's given, or he's at least told, is to a spy from the Russians, um, just to kind of give him that guilt trip to think, well, you know, you think you're being idealistic um, and you're actually supplying the enemy. Um, when, yeah. of course, this was the golden age of Russia being the enemy. 
Absolutely, absolutely, and, and and all of those '80s movies with snow in them have Russian villains, don't they? I mean, <laughs> you know, even even Rocky Four. And at this point, we're finding out more about um, Pierce Brosnan's character, where he's being. I suppose this is another thing you see in films where he removes, or he's told to remove all the the contact that he's had with anyone. So his contact in Russia slash Finland is killed, as we see later on. And he is, as he calls Jim Ross, I think, is the, is the legend yeah. that he's given. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just looking back now, I mean, we're, what, 32 years later, the the idea of seeing a young, youngish Pierce Brosnan driving an Escort XR3 with his sort of supermodel hair is just magnificent. It is. Well, I mean, he was in The Professionals as well, wasn't he, Pierce? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and, it, and it has that kind of vibe to it. And, you know, I think... I think another film, one of the reasons I, I love this film is that it kind of seems to exist within an unofficial cinematic universe with um, with Who Dares Wins as well. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can totally believe that that when the SAS come in at the end, Lewis Collins was uh, was on holiday that day because <laughs> um, they, they all look very similar. And, um, yeah, that's another one of my kind of favorite. I, I think The Fourth Protocol and Who Dares Wins are my, my two favorite Brit action movies of the 80s. Yeah, they, they sit nicely together, and again, it's nice to think that, you know, it's, it's quite easy, certainly with British films, and you think that they, they do occupy the same space where the actors and probably a lot of the crew sort of drift from one set to the other. Yeah, well, they did. I mean, look, no one was making films then. You know, people talk about a drought in film production now, but, um, you know, there was Goldcrest back then, and that was kind of that. That's why Kane was doing all those films in America and ultimately moved out there. Yeah, I guess um, Kane in canon movies was a a big thing at the time but you know and people talk about that in in a derogatory way and i know there were some shady working practices that we talked upon and actually the the superman 3 episode where the cast and crew would all often be working on two or three movies at the same time under the guise of one to get around sort of various labor laws and things like that but um I mean, as as a consumer, I suppose it's it's not a bad place to be, but I guess under sort of current working standards, definitely uh, frowned upon, at least. Yeah, I, look, I, I all I can tell you is I never met Golden Globus, um, but I have huge admiration for what they produced and the fact that they managed to be incredibly prolific. Um, yeah. And obviously, there are some some tantalising gems amongst their their output, um, which which I love um, the Ninja movies, the Death Wish movies, all those kind of things. Um, you know, that we, we always hear that they're sort of stereotypical film producers. They're not really, because they very clearly, you know, just saw it as product and, and shipped it out. Um, and I, I've, I've certainly never come across anyone quite like that. Um, but I, I have no doubt that if I had, I would have done business with them. Um, because, I, you know, I really admired their, their productivity. And, and I think everyone jumped on working with them because they got stuff done. You know, the, the film industry is riddled. It always has been and always will be with people who do a lot of talking and not a lot of doing. Um, and they they certainly did a lot of doing. Would you ever consent to some sort of electric boogaloo style documentary of your back catalogue? Well, if I ever do anything <laughs> worth making a documentary about, sure. <laughs> You'd have to get Superman Five up and running. I think they did posters for that and traded those at Cannes at one point. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that, that that's that's how you used to do it. Then was just those yeah. sort of pre-sales at, at, at Cannes, and it wasn't just them. I mean, you know, Charles Band was was doing um, some some great um, posters for films that never got made, which which have terrific artwork. I'm uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of those kind of Empire movies as well. Um, and uh, you know, I suppose I suppose to be honest with you, because I sort of was always intrigued by how these films are promoted. That's why I take such a personal interest in how my own films are, are marketed now. You know, when things like we talk about the fourth protocol 30 years later where there's things that even something like the score which seems 
as an end user to be almost a another part of the product when that sort of stuff gets lost you think if you're going to spend any money on it you might as well put it all out there and you know make it worthwhile yeah no absolutely and and i think uh, you know I, I i don't mind the key art for the fourth protocol um the, the british key art which is that sort of shuttered picture of kane um but it doesn't really sing to you um you know i i can see why it was quite a muted ad campaign and didn't really catch fire um and it's it's a shame because it is it, it's it's a movie that's considerably better than its artwork or its reputation well, it's difficult as well that um, one of the, and certainly when when I recorded this off the telly, and it was off the, I think it was London Live channel over here, um, and the image they showed as the promo art was a picture of Brosnan in the KGB uniform stood slightly behind Michael Caine. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. And, and if you're, and I shared this on Twitter, and you kind of think like, if, you, if you're fresh to this film, you hadn't seen it before, you think, oh wow, you know, this this should be great. Of course it's a promo still, and, and bears no resemblance to anything that happened in the film. You, I mean, not that anyone would hopefully rely on one photograph, but that would be quite disappointing if you think that, you know, Caine and Brosnan shared such a small amount of screen time and barely any dialogue other than a grunt or two. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not sleuth, is it? Um, in that in that sense, um, but it's you know, I mean, I, I I think it's that sort of cat and mouse without ever meeting thing. I, I it's it's yeah, it's a hard film to market though, you know, because mm. normally with with a spy movie, you just put the the alpha male on the front and then lots of explosions behind him. But of course, <laughs> there aren't any explosions in the movie. Um, you know, on on the other hand, talk, just going back to that film Blue Ice, which is kind of a, a compatriot of the Fourth Protocol, I remember being incredibly disappointed after seeing the trailer that Bob Hoskins. Was only movie for about 90 seconds um because he's most of the trailer running around with a machine gun shooting at um, people looking like it's this big explosive london action film and then he's just doing corporate military training um so you know the, the art of the mist cell is is a is a peculiarly british thing um and it is something i've certainly suffered from i, I made a comedy about the film industry called just for the record um which uh, danny dyer played a a sort of uh, film producer with a moustache, um, sort of Clark Gable moustache, and they, they released it as a gangster movie um, with him on the front <laughs> with a picture from another film saying, get in on the action, just try not to get cut. Um, so, 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 you know, I, I know how hard it is trying to strike the balance between actually selling stuff and then being truthful. Yes. <laughs> Bloody hell, imagine that. Yeah, it was it was fairly soul-destroying, you can imagine. I can imagine. Well, how, much, how much work did you put into that? Well, I mean, not much. The film was crap, so I suppose I deserved it, really. But, um... <laughs> ah. Well, in this case, I mean, Michael Caine, having been told off for his uh, chasing around of, of the surveillance and everything else, he's, I say demoted, he's moved to another department where we get the... Uh, he's moved to airports and ports, or airports yeah, and airports bla- bloody, bloody ports. ports. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I guess for some, I mean, in, in my field of work, going to the airport is normally a, a lifestyle choice rather than a career aspiration. But this is kind of what gives him almost a, an inner into how the scheme is caught and of course you know spoiler alert throughout the film we find out towards the end that he's being fed this information yeah but but working in airports and bladdy ports actually allows him access to this um you know he ends up finding that a russian is struck by a truck in glasgow in possession of polonium Mm. and then that leads down the sort of rabbit trail of the atomic bomb and and everything that goes along there it's all very i mean there's circumstance but there's also you know the fact that he is doing spy slash investigation work 
to actually get to the bottom of this plot, whereas his senior officer is more just determined on moulding the public sector in his image and, oh, he's a yes man and we can't disappoint him, so we'll fuck you off instead. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's that's the, the, the core of it, is that, you know, Kane as the sort of everyman hero is is still bucking the authority, and, and obviously it's his instinct as a human being that wins out over the pen pushers, which, um, you know, is, is a fairly Frederick Forsyth theme, I think. It works so well, and yet it just feels like, from the beginning it's all a little bit nice that it falls into his lap and of course that that was kind of the whole point which i guess it's that whole conspiracy theory thing where everything is done for a reason even the the overall plot that you know had it failed great if it had gone ahead obviously there would have been benefits to the to the soviets anyway but the fact that yeah. it's his compatriot or isn't his his ally in mi5 is in on it as well um sort of re-watching it again you kind of just think oh this is difficult to watch when you kind of think all at the end they're all basically puppets on strings exactly and and i think that that kind of gives them a nice get out for the fact that otherwise it would all be a little um uncredible so yeah. um I, I think i think that was a smart thing i i don't i haven't read the book so i don't know if that was in the book um i would imagine it was um i would imagine like most of these things the book would have had more um, rather than less sort of story, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's it's a smart move. You know, it's a very well constructed story. Yeah, um, and even the parts where the the elements of Pierce Brosnan sort of meet in contact in order to exchange the bomb parts, because you know there, there's the scene where he's walked in on in the gents. Yep. Um, and and again, there's a slight sort of I would say missell there, but the, definitely his background of where he's this highly trained KGB soldier we've already had an element of the plot where was it the the man's son was implicated in some sort of gay yes. photography in order to get him on side so there's yeah. clearly that that's already been established that within the Soviet Union and the KGB homosexuality is a bad thing and yet we see shortly afterwards Pierce Brosnan decides to almost seduce this witness to his trading of the bomb part and then cuts his throat in the front of a Ford Sierra. Yeah, well, I think it's it's also, you know, it's sort of the by any means necessary thing. But mm. then you, you also you also think, is is he just a bit of a wrong and Pierce Brosnan? Because he's, you know, he, he gets that guy, then he's got the American's wife, then he obviously shags um, the girl that brings him the part for the bomb. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's just a sort of ticking time bomb of testosterone, isn't he? Um, well, and, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, and and, <laughs> and, 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 and and who can blame him really? I suppose is uh, is the long and the short of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I always thought that scene where the guy tries to pick him up in the in the bathroom of the airport was was quite sort of mod, really. Um, hmm. You know, you you wouldn't think twice about it now, but in the mid eighties, that was an unusual thing to see, and and Brosnan was always very uh, sort of relaxed with that um, you know I, I think you know we are still talking about a time in the mid 80s when a lot of actors would have said oh, I'm not going to play a homosexual you're mad um, mm. you know because they had all these crazy ideas about machismo and stuff which which thankfully have well hopefully all, all faded away now um, and he, he was always pretty chilled and, and seemed very happy with who he was in his screen persona yeah and I guess as you say I, I don't think this part was particularly implicated but it almost seemed like he was because he was exposed to kind of that both sort of average Milton Keynes slash East Anglia lifestyle and seeing what was going on through his neighbour's windows and there was that exposure to various sexual practices that I don't know, you know, they weren't implicated in what was shown in the Russia scenes. 
But right. perhaps he was a little bit exposed to this and kind of just thinking, okay, this world is different. Um, yeah, yeah, you know. but yeah, absolutely. You know, you're right. I think you're right. I think that's definitely, a, you know, it must have been a massive culture shock. It would be, wouldn't it, coming from Soviet Russia into into good old Milton Keynes. Yeah, and I'll, you know, the the fact that we, we see shortly afterwards when he goes onto the airbase with his neighbours and there's the bowling alley in the American. I mean, I, I have been on one of these airbases through work and I... One of them was it Lake and Heath? They had a Burger King where you pay in pounds and they give you a change in dollars. Right, and it was that was just such an alien concept. They did tell us that that would happen, but sort of being there and everyone there had an American accent, and we actually went in a bowling alley and I can't remember where Lake and Heath was, but um, we're sitting there and just going. But having been in that environment, then seeing it here on the film, it's just I can imagine why it would sort of both throw a lot of people, and probably if you're that way inclined in terms of you know small mindedness or the inconvenience of it of course it's, it's in the news now for air force bases and diplomatic immunity and all that nonsense but um that's a very odd environment it's almost like being on an embassy on foreign soil yes yes it is absolutely and having it was it your was it matt through i think was the actor he was in honey i shrunk the kids i think i remember him from yeah um and his wife i just wrote wife with eyebrows who has a massive, massive crush on him and grabs his thigh in the car. Yeah. Yeah, well, who can blame her? I mean, he's an incredibly (laughs) handsome man. You know, Russian sociopathic serial killer or not, he's, you know... With a perfect British accent. Exactly, exactly. Um, One thing I did love, and obviously this can't have been deliberate, was the fact that when they were dancing in the bar to uh, Stand By Your Man, which was um, what was playing in the bar in St. Petersburg when he went to Russia. Goldeneye, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Not a strangling a cat by Mini Driver. Yes, yes, quite. <laughs> I'm strangling the cat. Strangling a cat. That is Irina, my mistress. Very talented girl. Um, and then this is where we have he picks up the the bomb assembler and they start putting the bomb parts together or oh, so he's he's had the lesson anyway and he's he's picking up the various parts where uh kane's having the lesson sorry um they're talking about picking up the the very heavy ball and yep it's um he's always you know he's on a mission when he's in his black levers on his bmw motorbike looking yes quite, yeah a bit like street hawk or something like that yes exactly i was gonna say looking like he used to have his own 80s tv show doing that absolutely <laughs> yeah and, and even something where we see this it's easy to look back on, on technology as dating a film where the, um, Michael Caine spends all night, bear in mind he's officially suspended from work, but um, he's spending all night looking through sort of border checks and flight manifests. He looks like he's been up all night playing, I don't know, one championship manager on his laptop or something like that. But um, yes, yeah, an old computer. Yeah, and, just... and, and, and his little boy comes and sits on his knee and he says <laughs> no one could pronounce all their names. Yeah. yeah. He looks like he's playing a sort of football manager game with all these sort of Eastern European. Yeah. imports trying to work out who to sign yeah no it's, it's, it takes me back to the glory days of the Commodore 64 oh, in fact this, I, I read I think it was on IMDB this was actually a game or they made a game of this film really yeah <laughs> I, that I don't remember I, I can't imagine it would have been a particularly brilliant one I have to say but... no I remember the, the Death Wish 3 one 
which was yes. um, amusing. But um, there must be footage of it on YouTube or. Well, you or know there was a, there was a, there was a flurry in the in the mid eighties of, of of video games looking to license any kind of established sort of IP. So any film that came out, I mean, there was a View to a Kill computer game. Yeah. Um. All the, all these things, but also some some less obvious ones such as indeed the Fourth Protocol. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember having sort of Robocop and Cobra. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'd have never pinned this one as um, no as an essential on my spectrum plus two. No, I, I think we should push for the CD rather than the video game cassette. <laughs> but this one, um, so Pierce meets I've put Zora because that was a character from Blade Runner, and again she said she's from Finland, so you know I didn't notice a Finnish accent. Th- those regular listeners might know my, my wife's from Finland, so we didn't pick up too much of that. Um, ah. He's clearly got the horn for her because she's a very attractive lady and he's a very lonely man. And, and he's been um, watching too much wrestling. Yep. Too, mu- too much Big Daddy. Yeah, It's a shame they didn't get the World of Sport theme in there somewhere. It's <laughs> probably more expensive. <laughs> yeah. um, and they start assembling, I suppose this is the sort of home bomb maker's cookbook really, isn't it? Where they're building this huge bomb on the table and aiming to kill up to 5,000 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. All these very shiny cylindrical parts is all very, uh, and of course he's topless and they're drinking wine. So, of course, very middle class activity to do. Is this something you've had in any of your films? A sort of bomb making scene? No, we can't afford bombs. We're low budget movies. <laughs> um, we'd be more kind of whoopee cushions. Um, no, I haven't. Um, I, I, I would like to. I'd like to do a spy movie. To be honest, I'm always looking out for one. Um, you know, and, and if I could do something in this vein. Then, uh, then I, I would like that. I don't know how easy it would be to do it um, in the in the market at the minute, where everyone wants kind of massive action or serious drama, and it sort of sits in the middle. But um, I would love to do it. I, I, I um, we, we've been developing a, a TV series, um, a spy series called Shady, um, written by the actor Nick Moran, and and that's very kind of Harry Palmer esque, um, and that's sort of going out or, or is in play. With sort of Netflix and Amazon and those kind of people. Mm. Um, it, it feels like it could be more of a TV thing than a movie thing these days, but it's certainly a, it's a space I'd like to be in for sure. Yeah, and we missed out this part where um, they get information that the radio engineer is on the train, um, and there's the I quite enjoyed the stunt where they drove into the station alongside the moving I train. I know into into Liverpool Street Station, which you just, <laughs> I mean I've never known that to be a possible thing to do. Um, I think it's Liverpool Street because it's a Colchester train, isn't it? So it be. yeah, it should be. Yeah. That's what I thought because yeah. I, I kind of thought you know. I mean, I think at Paddington, if you took out the rail barriers, you probably would be able to. But again, it'd just yeah. be done for fare evasion. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, but you know, he, he does do it, and he, there's also a rather neat bit of trickery where he hops off the train unseen, isn't there? Yeah, and he's. I love it where he's just stood behind the train on the tracks as it pulls away. Yeah, he just should have been smoking a really big cigar for that shot. <laughs> and this is, I suppose, where we move properly into East Anglia, where um, the Soviet engineer goes towards the, the biker cafe and Kane is doing sort of some surveillance from a bed and breakfast opposite. Yes, yes, and they, they sort of show everyone out. And again, that's where it all starts to feel a bit like um, Who Dares Wins as well. You know, that, that, that surveillance stuff reminds me of the bit where... Um, Rosalind Lloyd and her, her kid are trapped in the Muse house by Ingrid Pitt. I sort of said, wonder if this would be on TripAdvisor somewhere. They'd uh, maybe afterwards, John Preston, a random number would engineer on TripAdvisor saying, "Oh, it's very good. Um, you know, good view of the cafe opposite for yeah. <laughs> bin- binoculars." And that's when they see Pierce Brosnan for the first time turning up to 
I think this is to send the message back to Moscow that everything's all sort of organised, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I mean, what a pain in the ass it was in the 80s. You had to go all the way down there just to send a, a signal. Now you could just do it with a WhatsApp. I know. I say, he'd have to get on his bike and go down to the cafe. And, and yeah. this was something that they, they talked about. You know, they were going to hit the cafe afterwards. And I guess whatever information or intelligence they got from there would be great. But the fact that it was, you know, you, it's just, you wouldn't suspect a biker cafe to be housing some sort of Soviet radio installation. No, especially not in Colchester, I'll be honest with you. That's, that's really not a hotbed of red activity, as, as far as I'm aware from various trips there. No, I've got a friend who grew up there. I might have to uh, text him and find out if he was aware of any sort of shady-looking Russians at the time. Yeah, but they had to, you know, those 80 spies, they had to really work for it. There was, I mean, you know, technology really has made their job a lot easier, hasn't it? Having to actually physically go to somewhere to send a message, it's, I suppose it's a slightly, just a, a bigger scale version of going down to your local phone box to make a call. Exactly that. Exactly that. It's, it's it's an international red phone box. <laughs> At this point, uh, Brosnan leaves on his bike, and Kane follows him in their transit van off to Ipswich. Um, and they've because they've managed to put a, a tracker on the bike so they can follow him. Yeah. He's doing it's quite impressive riding with the uh, you know in the sort of country roads and and all that. Yeah, and then and then, and then they hit the most British of all obstacles, the traffic jam. <laughs> which has been sort of you know the, the police have arrived on scene very quickly and with the signs and everything but um yeah it's um you know it, it, there's that little bit of tension where obviously Brosnan's stuck in traffic and Kane gets out and it's just some ludicrous driving from the van driver sort of barging the cars out in front and then going off-road pissing yeah. off the local walkers and probably doggers Although, although at least they, they didn't do the old trick of, you know, he finds someone in a car who looks just like Pierce Brosnan from behind, but is actually a woman. You know, yeah. that, that, that's the cliche I was kind of always expecting in that scene. Um, but no, he just misses him by being sort of slightly incompetent and slow. Yeah. But again, it was just that, that little bit of tension and um, you know, Brosnan driving the, the XR3i. Yeah. It, uh, it was nice to see. And of course, he gets away initially anyway. But um, yeah, just the, some of the driving of that van. I mean, I've having driven for transit i guess it's a good advert for them being quite robust yes yes i think so i i think i mean you know i've often watched that film and thought i must get that van for the next time i decide <laughs> to try and break out of a, a traffic jam <laughs> um and to the the airbase there's a large cnd protest on the uh the various interruption i guess now you could probably change that to climate change or something like yeah that. yeah extinction rebellion i guess that's exactly what it is i mean you <laughs> yeah. know it, it can't be long before they turn up as a villain in a movie yeah it's just I, i'd imagine that extinction rebellion are probably a bit more disruptive rather than standing at a fence with candles and singing but times have changed yes they have they have yes i think you're right um so kane gets into the house opposite um brosnan's and doing surveillance from there and kind of basically implicate says that to the the neighbors say oh he murdered his wife and kids and anything to get him out of the house but uh, they really do set up in this this house with a commando team arrive. They do, they do, it's, which is terrific. And then suddenly you know when the SAS are there, it's all over. It all gets serious. Um, and even, you know, they're sitting there watching and they're, they're turning up the NATO jumpers and everything. Like you say, they do look like, you know, they could be from Who Dares Wins. Yeah, they, they totally do. You know, Skellum was on holiday that day, so he sent his mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like the fact when when they're sort of jumping around trying to put the the listening devices on and they just grab the kid, yeah, um, who's lost his cat. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's great, you know, and it's, it's that's the thing. It is quite a realistic film, and it's very British. And all the you know, the traffic jam, the cat in the tree. I mean, every, every problem is 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 like something straight off that Twitter account. Very British problems. <laughs> I wonder if maybe I, I didn't look and see sort of how this film did at box office, and I, I guess you know you, you could also look at when whatever films were released around the same time. But I don't know how well you know this would have translated into the US market. Bear in mind, it was sort of a bit Soviet, and it involved the Americans, but it was filmed almost entirely in the east of England. Yeah, I, I don't know either, and it's very hard you know, to look at historical figures and, and put them in perspective. I can't imagine it did particularly well in America. I would have thought they would have seen it as more of a TV movie than a, a movie movie, although you know, Brosnan was a draw, because he arguably more of a draw than Kane in the States, um, with, point, with, yeah. with Remington still. Um, you know, Kane was always um, sort of a, a supporting actor in big films um, in, in, in America. Um, you know, I, I remember the first time I went there and I was, I was trying to talk to someone about who Michael Kane was. And eventually we got to the fact, oh, yeah, he's the Brit from Jaws 4, which, which I thought was a fairly damning indictment of his career, particularly given the way that films followed him around with such a, a bad smell. But actually, to, you know, for a long time, he was the Brit from Jaws 4 and the Muppet Christmas Carol. That's, that's mm. what happens when you make populist movies. But if if you're a budding actor and you're remembered for even those two roles, that's not a bad CV. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, it really isn't. Uh, you know, listen, any actor to be remembered, any actor to be working is fantastic. And, you know, I, I always used to piss me off in the 80s, this, this real like negativity about Kane saying he does anything for money, he does this, he does that, he does the other. Well, you know what? He's the only one that had a film career. Mm. And, I guess... and, and, and good for him. Because, you know, I know firsthand how hard it is for actors. Yeah, and and he looks like he's usually enjoying himself, which yeah, you know, it, it's easy to turn up and take the money and run, but you know, in, in this there are large parts of it where he looks like he's enjoying it, you know. And one of my favourite Kane movies, Escape to Victory. I mean, that's the dream getting to play football with yeah. Bobby Moore and Pele and Sylvester Stallone. And Sylvester Stallone. I mean, how could it get any better? <laughs> oh, there's Rocky. <laughs> he's in here. He's. You know, bear in mind he's an MI5 spy. Uh, the SAS lot have burst into the house, and yet he's the one hiding who gets that sort of very, you know, by, by modern standards, very brief fight with Brosnan. Where again, it's quite brutal. There's headbutts and all sorts, which um, yeah, and it, and it is, but it's also very realistic. I mean, you know, yeah. most real fights last less than a minute, and that's that's what I quite like about it. Is and the, and the film throughout, you know, when the violence comes, it doesn't come often, but it's it's quite full on when Brosnan's taking care of people, when they have that scrap at the end. Um, you know, it, it's it's pretty good, and, and you know, I, I I like that about it. I think it's 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 good. I mean, I know now if that film was made, they'd have a ten minute you know CGI martial arts flipping sort of punch up that that was sort of picking up radiation and beating her over the head with it but i i thought it was really good and gritty and well done that fight yeah i mean again you're, you're in a con- confined space on a hallway in a sort of air force base style pop-up home it's you know yeah. there's only so much you can do this isn't jason bourne um, although I would love to see Michael Caine like, on wires or doing some sort of Krav Maga or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that opportunity is probably probably passed yeah. by now. Um, but uh, yes, no, I, I think I think he's he's not really a natural screen fighter, particularly um, Kane, You know, and, and, but but in this one, it it, he, it seemed to be harnessed very well. You know, it, it's convincing done. I don't know who the fight director was, but I think they did a great job. And again, this is the part where um, as he's. You know, because Brosnan's reaching for the bomb, which is all ready to go. It's, you know, the plot where he assumed he's only just found out because he assumed that the bomb had a two-hour timer. Uh, the lady who he 
got his end away with, changed it to zero, then he killed her. As yep. as you know, once he'd you know done done the deed. Um, yep. But yeah, he'd only just found out it was due to go. Obviously, was interrupted. And uh, yeah, I mean that must be difficult. I suppose this probably re- when he realised he'd been set up. And but it was still trying to set the bomb off, and Kane was stopping him from doing it. But um, you know, he he was prone. He was laid out on the floor when the SAS turned up and just riddled him with bullets like, under orders. Yeah, say sh- shoot to kill. But again, you know, and I, I mentioned it on Twitter when Terry DeFellon, who's been on here before, we talked about how there was a lack of sort of screen time between Brosnan and Kane when. And I guess this, this isn't the story, and this could be deemed as fan fiction, as Terry said, um, where we could have had an interrogation between the two. Yeah, that would have been it, a great scene. Yeah, yeah. And even if Brosnan was a KGB, you know, highly trained and everything, the fact that he knew at that point he'd been set up would have given it some, at least, an angle where he may not have sat there in complete silence. Mm. Yeah, lost to the world that one, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think, but I think the ending where, where Kane sort of finds out that it is it is all you know puppets uh, on a string thing is 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 a very satisfying ending. Um, you know, obviously it's slightly downbeat, but then you think his kid's being snatched by the Russians and he's actually just mischievously playing um, away from the card. Don't do that, children. It scares us as parents. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's kind of the perfect ending, and it, it goes out with that big sort of reprise of the music, and um, and and it's it's over. Yeah, I mean the way he he comes across the two, at, you know, sort of behind the scenes at the funeral, where, you know, he he just outright says, and I guess this is all his kind of independent renegade thing, where he says, "I've got it here. You don't give a shit about anything except your lousy careers. Neither of them. It's about time they put you in a fucking museum." Yeah, what a way to go. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's great. It's, it's that it's that last Michael Caine V sign to the. Uh... To the establishment, I think it's 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 a perfect ending to a, an espionage thriller. Uh, but then that's again when the KGB guys do says, "Do you think he'll talk?" You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, that's just what he does. He's still you know queen and country and everything. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just such a as you say downbeat in a way, but it tailed it off very nicely. Yeah, yeah, no, it did, and it's it's you know I, I think thinking about it now, um, I think it is. It is one of my... It's in my top three 80s Kane movies. And say, so that that's a lot to choose from as well. There is, there is. But <laughs> I think I think that, um, without a clue, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels are probably my three favourites, with with honourable mentions to... Uh, I hate to say it, but Jaws of Revenge, which I love. Um, the Holcroft Covenant, which is, is fun and is kind of a stable mate for this. Um, blame it on Rio, educating Rita. I, I must say, I never much cared for um, The Whistleblower. Have you seen that one with uh, oh. Nigel Havers as his son? I haven't seen it, no. So, no, it's, uh, it's a bit. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a slog. It's kind of like the Coronation Street version of the Fourth Protocol. <laughs> Blimey, that's a praise indeed. Yes, uh, I will have to dig out because yeah, obviously, being a, a cult Steve Gutenberg fan, there was Surrender that he did. That was a canon movie. Um, yeah, I think that came out in eighty-seven as well. So, yes, yes, I, I, I haven't seen that for at least twenty-five years. So, I, I, yes. my memories of it are a little foggy. I'll be honest. It is on YouTube. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can't endorse watch films on YouTube that shouldn't be there. So, uh. yes. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, yes. So, so, Jonathan, that was the fourth protocol. Um, now it was. we've t- we've touched upon 
throughout the podcast your your work sort of past and present but um shogun films has landed in january 2020 tell us a little bit about what we can expect from that well you know shogun is is, is a new a new british film company with a new kind of way of approaching um getting films made um which is you know a tough thing in this country at the minute it's it's trying to embrace um all the modern technology i we're going to be doing a shogun films podcast um we're going to have a very active youtube channel but also we're, we're fundamentally about making good quality genre films um with with great actors that people will enjoy and you know canon is is an inspiration, not the business practice, but definitely the model. Um, you know, Carol Co., all those things, and, and we've reflected that in our branding. So it's it's kind of modern and progressive, but also slightly retro because I think you know, as as guys particularly, we all like these these sort of eighties and nineties movies. Um, and we start shooting our first Shogun film next month, which is uh, a gangland home invasion movie called Nemesis, um, which is a terrific uh, terrific script, great concept, um, very nice cast coming together, which we'll be announcing imminently. Um, so it's you know I think if you if you like the kind of movies that I've been making like Vendetta and We Still Kill the Old Way, um, the, then Shogun is definitely the home for you. Well, all I know about Nemesis is the title, and that is enough to have me convinced. But um... well, there, there you go. I mean, if that isn't a canon trick, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> it works on me unless it's Nemesis in Venice or something like that. Then uh, <laughs> that could be the sequel. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's mission to mission to nemesis. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I mean, Shogun Films is going to be sort of active on social media, and um, in terms of the podcast, what sort of um, I know, obviously, people who listen to this listen to others. What sort of content are we going to have from the podcast? Well, the, the the idea is essentially to make it a podcast about independent British movies, um, current, past, present. Um, it'll be hosted by myself and uh, my colleague Adam Stephen Kelly, who's a writer director. Um, and we'll have occasional guests on to talk about, you know, new films, the state of the industry, what's happening, because I, I don't see a resource out there for that. And I think, you know, people, old movies are great. I love old movies, I'm, you know, as you can probably tell from the last hour and a half. But um, I, I also think that we need to know about what's going on in the industry now and, and the truth of it, not the sugar-coated kind of BFI version of it. So uh, that, that's our sort of mission statement for that. Oh, well, I say it'll be interesting listening because, as you say, there's you know the the version that gets put out by other people there's the side that perhaps film companies or producers or that want you to see but i guess having something you know an alternative taken well say alternative in that's probably well it's going to be true so yeah <laughs> that's well, rare enough anyway <laughs> Um, so, as we've talked about before, um, you're on social media. Your personal one is at Softcott on Twitter. On, on Twitter and at Jonathan Softcott on Instagram, yes. Yeah, and um, so there's plenty of, uh, if, if anyone's into sort of dapper clothing and things like that, and some of the, obviously, you certainly have some fine dining experiences as well that um, yes, us, us mere mortals can only envy. Well, yeah, I, I think, to be honest, the only reason anyone looks at my Instagram is to see pictures of my wife is very beautiful, so I'm very happy with that. <laughs> plenty on there and yes. um yeah get yourself over jonathan thank you very much for coming along and uh we'll make sure we rewind your copy of the film before we've done it yes now. yes be kind please rewind and i i think we managed to get through that without actually breaking the fourth protocol which is uh is good yeah i say that's um i don't want to have to find out that we've been set up at the end of this yeah Although, uh, <laughs> if someone says that we belong in a fucking museum that's a compliment i think yes yes i i agree <laughs> I, I would take pride of place <laughs> and as is tradition uh the number one song when this film re was released and we're talking the 20th of march 1987 in the uk uh was everything i own by boy george so um 
Yeah, not quite the fourth protocol soundtrack, but no, um, no, not not the banger I was hoping for, if I'm honest. But, um, no, yeah, we've we've um we've had better. <laughs> yeah, but um yeah, it's a it sits sits there nice. It's um very much of its time. But. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> anyway, Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Lovely. Cheers. This episode was brought to you by executive producers Gary West, Fergus Higginson, Keith Foster, Jimmy Fletcher, Mark Drakes, Matt Cunnington, Christian Dees, Andy Elliott, Chris Hopkins, Omar Zambon, Laurie Curran and Ian Madrell, and associate producer Chris Oakley. Visit patreon.com forward slash Betamax Video Club for more information about bonus episodes, early access and more. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on iTunes.